Section 13 of Herbals, Their Origin and Evolution, a chapter in the history of botany. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Herbals, Their Origin and Evolution, a chapter in the history of botany by Agnes Arbor. 7. The Evolution of the Art of Botanical Illustration. In the art of botanical illustration, evolution was by no means a simple and straightforward process. We do not find in Europe a steady advance from early illustrations of poor quality to later ones of a finer character. On the contrary, among the earliest extant drawings of a definitely botanical intention, we meet with wonderfully good figures, free from such features as would be now generally regarded as archaic. The famous Vienna manuscript of Dioscorides, see pages 8 and 85, is a remarkable example of the excellence of some of the very early work. It dates back to the end of the 5th or the beginning of the 6th century of the Christian era. It is illustrated with brush drawings on a large scale, which in many cases are notably naturalistic and quite often modern in appearance. The general habit of the plant is admirably expressed, and occasionally, as in the case of the bean, the characters of the flowers and seed vessels are well indicated. In this drawing also, the leaves are effectively foreshortened. There are a number of other manuscript herbals in existence illustrated with interesting figures. The Library of the University of Leiden possesses a particularly fine example, which is ascribed to the 7th century A.D., this work contains colored drawings of exceptional beauty, which are smaller than those in the Vienna manuscript, but quite equally realistic. It is, however, with the history of botanical figures since the invention of the printing press that we are here more especially concerned. From this epoch onward, the history of botanical illustration is intimately bound up with the history of a wood engraving, until at the extreme end of the 16th century, engraving on metal first came into use to illustrate herbals. During the 17th century, metal engravings and wood cuts existed side by side, but wood engraving gradually declined and was in great measure superseded by engraving on metal. The finest period of plant illustration was during the 16th century when wood engraving was at its zenith. Botanical wood engravings may be regarded as belonging to two schools, but it should be understood that the distinction between them is somewhat arbitrary and must not be pressed very far. One of these may perhaps be regarded as representing the last decadent expression of that school of late classical art which, a thousand years earlier, had given rise to the drawings in the Vienna manuscript. Probably no original woodcuts of this school were produced after the close of the 15th century. In the second phase, on the other hand, which culminated artistically, if not scientifically, in the 16th century, we find a renaissance of the art due to a more direct study of nature. The first school of which we may take the cuts in the Roman edition of the Herbarium of Apelius Platonicus, 1484, as typical examples, has, as Dr. Payne has pointed out, certain very well-marked characteristics. The figures of the plants, which occupy square or oblong spaces, are very formal and are often represented with complete bilateral symmetry. They show no sign of having been drawn directly from nature, but look as if they were founded on previous work. They have a decorative rather than a naturalistic appearance. 
it seems indeed as if the principle of decorative symmetry controlled the artist almost against his will these drawings are somewhat of the nature of diagrams by a draughtsman who generalized his knowledge of the object in dr payne's own words such figures passing through the hands of a hundred copyists became more and more conventional until they reached their last and most degraded form in the rude cuts of the roman herbarium which represent not the infancy but the old age of art uncouth as they are we may regard them with some respect both as being the images of flowers that bloomed many centuries ago and also as the last ripple of the receding tide of classical art the illustrations of the herbarium of apollius were copied from pre-existing manuscripts and the age of the originals is no doubt much greater than that of the printed work those here reproduced are taken from a copy in the british museum in which the pictures were colored probably at the time when the book was published coloring of the figures was characteristic of many of the earliest works in which wood engraving was employed in cases where uncolored copies of such books exist there are often blank spaces in the woodcuts which were left in order that certain details might afterwards be added in color the origin of wood engraving is closely connected with the earlier history of playing card manufacture playing cards were at first colored by means of stencil plates and the same method very naturally came to be employed in connection with the wood blocks used for book illustration the engravings in the herbarium of apollius are executed in black in very crude outline at least two colors now much faded were also employed by means of stenciling the work was coarsely done and the colors only register very roughly brown appears to have been used for the animals roots and flowers and green for the leaves the drawings show some rather curious mannerisms for instance in the first cut labeled vetonia each of the lanceolate leaves is outlined continuously on the one side but with a broken line on the other it has been suggested that the illustrations in the herbarium are possibly not wood engravings but rude cuts in metal excavated after the manner of a wood block we have already referred to the imaginative portrait of the mandrake Figures of the animals whose bites or stings were supposed to be cured by the use of a particular herb were often introduced into the drawing, as in the case of the plantain, which is accompanied by a serpent and a scorpion. In this figure, the cross-hatching of white lines on black, the simplest possible device from the point of view of the wood engraver, is employed with good effect. Sometimes the essential character of the plant is seized, but the way in which it is expressed is curiously lacking in a sense of proportion, as in the case of Draconte one of the Aram family. The figures in the herbarium are characterized by an excellent trait which is common to most of the older herbals, namely the habit of portraying the plant as a whole, including its roots. This came about naturally because the root was often of special value from the druggist's point of view. It is to be regretted that in modern botanical drawings, the recognition of the paramount importance of the flower and fruit in classification has led to a comparative neglect of the organs of vegetation, especially those which exist underground we now come to a series of illustrations which may be regarded as occupying an intermediate position between the classical tradition of the herbarium of apollius and the renaissance of botanical drawing which took place early in the 16th century these include the illustrations to the book of nature and to the latin and german herbarius the ortus sanitatis and their derivatives which were discussed in chapters two and three Das Puch der Natur of Conrad von Megenberg occupies a unique position in the history of botany, for it is the first work in which a woodcut representing plants was used with the definite intention of illustrating the text, and not merely for a decorative purpose. 
It was first printed in Augsburg in 1475 and is thus several years older than the earliest printed edition of the Herbarium of Apelius Platonicus, which we have just discussed. The single plant drawing which illustrates it is probably not of such great antiquity, however, as those of the Herbarium, for its appearance suggests that it was probably executed from nature for this book and not copied and recopied from one manuscript to another before it was engraved. The illustration in question is a full-page wood cut showing a number of plants growing in situ. Several species, example, Ranunculus acris, the meadow buttercup, Viola odorata, the sweet violet, and Convalaria majalis, the lily of the valley, are distinctly recognizable. It is noticeable that, in two cases, in which a rosette of radical leaves is represented, the center of the rosette is filled in in black, upon which the leaf stalks appear in white. This use of the black background, which gives a rich and solid effect, was carried much further in later books, such as the Ortus Sanatatis. A woodcut, somewhat similar in style to that just described, but more primitive, occurs in Trevisa's version of the medieval encyclopedia of Bartholomaeus Angelicus, which was printed by Winken de Vord, before the end of the 15th century. It is probably the first botanical figure illustrating an English book. The illustrations to the Latin Herbarius or Herbarius Maguntinus, published at Mainz in 1484, form the next group of botanical woodcuts. The figures are much better than those of the Herbarium of Apelius, but at the same time they are, as a rule, formal and conventional, and often quite unrecognizable. The want of realism is very conspicuous in such a drawing as that of the lily, in which the leaves are represented as if they had no organic continuity with the stem. Some of the figures are wonderfully charming, and in their decorative effect recall the plant designs so often used in the Middle Ages to enrich the borders of illuminated manuscripts. This is particularly noticeable in the case of the Briony. The conventional form of tendril here employed is also seen in other early work, such as the roof painting of a vine in the Chapel of St. Andrew, Canterbury Cathedral, and some decorated stained glass at Wells, both of which are considerably earlier in date than the Herbarius Maguntinus. A more interesting series of figures, also illustrating the text of the Latin Herbarius, was published in Italy a little later. The woodcuts are believed to be mostly derived from German originals. Text figures... 657, 65, 74, 75, and 76 are taken from a Venetian edition of 1499. These drawings are more ambitious than those in the original Greek issue, and on the whole, the results are more naturalistic. The fern called Capillus Veneris, which is probably intended for the maiden hair, is represented hanging from rocks over water just as it does in Devonshire caves today. Another delightful woodcut, almost in the Japanese style, is that of an iris growing in the margin of a stream from which a graceful bird is drinking. In the very symmetrical drawing of the peony, there is an attempt to represent the tuberous roots, which are indicated in solid black. The no less symmetrical water lily is remarkable for its rhizome, on which the scars of the leaf bases are faithfully represented. This drawing is of interest also on account of its frank disregard of proportion. The flower stalks are drawn not more than twice as long as the breadth of the leaf. We may, I think, safely conclude that the draftsman knew quite well that he was not representing the plant as it was, 
and that he intentionally gave a conventional rendering which did not profess to be more than an indication of certain distinctive features of the plant this attitude of the artist to his work which is so different from that of the scientific draftsmen of the present day is seen with great clearness in many of the drawings in medieval manuscripts for instance a plant such as the house leek may be represented growing on the roof of a house the plant being about three times the size of the building no one would imagine that the artist was under the delusion that these proportions held a good in nature the little house was merely introduced in order to convey graphic information as to the habitat of the plant concerned and the scale on which it was depicted was simply a matter of convenience before an art can be appreciated its conventions must be accepted it would be as absurd to quarrel with the illustrations we have just described on account of their lack of proportion as to condemn grand opera because in real life men and women do not converse in song the idea of naturalistic drawings in which the size of the parts should be shown in their true relations was of comparatively late growth in 1485 the year following the first appearance of the latin herbarius the very important work known as the german herbarius or herbarius zu teutsch made its appearance at mainz as we pointed out in chapter two its illustrations which are executed on a large scale are often of remarkable beauty dr payne considered some of them comparable to those of brunfeld's infidelity of drawing though very inferior in wood cutting they are distinctly more realistic than even those of the venetian edition of the latin herbarius to which we have just referred it is interesting for instance to compare the drawings of the daughter in the two works other excellent drawings are those of the winter cherry iris lily chicory comfy and peony a pirated second edition of the arbarius zu tuich appeared at oxford only a few months after the publication of the first at mainz the figures which are roughly copied from those of the original edition are very inferior to them in fact the mainz woodcuts of 1485 excel those of all subsequent issues in the ortus sanitatis of 1491 about two-thirds of the drawings of plants are copied from the herbarius zu teutsch they are often much spoiled in the process and it is evident that the copyist frequently failed to grasp the intention of the original artist the woodcut of the daughter for instance is lamentably inferior to that in the herbarius zu teutsch there is often a tendency in the later work to make the figures occupy the space in a more decorative fashion for instance where the stalk in the original drawing is simply cut across obliquely at the base we find in the ortus sanitatis that its pointed end is continued into a conventional flourish among the original figures many as we have already indicated represent purely mythical subjects the use of a black background against which the stalks and leaves form a contrast in white which we noticed in the book of nature is carried further in the ortus sanitatis this is shown particularly well in the tree of paradise and also in text figures 10 and 81 no consistent method is followed in the coarse shading which is employed in some cases there seems to have been an attempt at the convention used so successfully by the japanese of darkening the underside of the leaf but sometimes in the same figure certain leaves are treated in this way and others not in some of the genres pictures noah's ark trees are introduced with crowns consisting entirely of parallel horizontal lines decreasing in length from below upwards so as to give a triangular form an edition of the ortus sanitatis which was published in venice in fifteen eleven 
is illustrated in great part with woodcuts based on the original figures. They have, however, a very different appearance, since a great deal of shading is introduced, and in some cases parallel lines are laid with considerable dexterity. The Greta Erbal and a number of works of the early 16th century derive from their Barius zu Teutsch, the Ortus Sanitatis, and similar sources, are of no importance in the history of botanical illustration, since scarcely any of their figures are original. The oft-repeated set of woodcuts, ultimately derived from the Herbarius Zutoich, were also used to illustrate Hieronymus Braunschweig's distillation book, Liber de Art Distillante de Simplicibus, 1500. That the conventional figures of the period did not satisfy the botanist is shown by some interesting remarks by Hieronymus at the conclusion of his work. He tells the reader that he must attend to the text rather than the figures, quote, for the figures are nothing more than a feast for the eyes and for the information of those who cannot read or write, end quote. During the first three decades of the 16th century, the art of botanical illustration was practically in abeyance in Europe. Such books as were published were chiefly supplied with mere copies of older woodcuts. But in 1530, an entirely new era was inaugurated with the appearance of Brunfell's great work, the Herbarum Vivae Icones, in which a number of plants native to Germany or commonly cultivated there were drawn with a beauty and fidelity which have rarely been surpassed. It is interesting to recall that the date 1530 is often taken in the study of other arts, for example, stained glass, as the limit of the Gothic period and the beginning of the Renaissance. Brunfell's illustrations represent a notable advance on any previous botanical woodcuts, so much so indeed that the suddenness of the improvement seems to call for some special explanation. On taking a broader view of the subject, we find that at the beginning of the 16th century there was a marked advance in all the branches of book illustration, and not merely in the botanical side with which we are here concerned. This impetus seems to have been due to the fact that many of the best artists, above all Albrecht Durer, began at that period to draw for wood engraving, whereas in the 15th century the ablest men had shown a tendency to despise the craft and to hold aloof from it. The engravings in Brunfell's herbal and the fine books which succeeded it should not be considered as if they were an isolated manifestation, but should be viewed in relation to other contemporary and even earlier plant drawings which were not intended for book illustrations. Some of the most remarkable are those by Albrecht Durer, which were produced before the appearance of Brunfell's herbal during the first thirty years of the 16th century. In each of his colored drawings of sods of turf, known as Das Gross Rassenstuck and Das Kleine Rassenstuck, a tangled group of growing plants is portrayed exactly as it occurred in nature, with a marvelous combination of artistic charm and scientific accuracy. Professor Killerman has been at pains to identify the genus and species of almost every plant represented, and has described the drawings as Das Erst Dunkmal der Pflanzenkologie. In 1526, Durer carried out a beautiful series of plant drawings, among the most famous of which are those of the Columbine and the Greater Celandine. The former is reproduced on a small scale in Plate 17. It is scarcely possible to imagine a more perfect habit drawing of a plant. In Italy, Leonardo da Vinci's exquisite study of plants, of which Plate 18 is an example, 
must also have pointed the way to a better era of herbal illustration. In his work, the artistic interest predominates over the botanical to a greater extent than is the case with Durer's drawing. It is strange to think that numerous editions of the Ortus Sanitatis and similar books, with their crude and primitive woodcuts, should have been published while such an artist as Leonardo da Vinci was at the zenith of his powers. If internal evidence alone were available, it might plausibly be maintained that the engravings in the Ortus Sanitatis and the drawings of Leonardo da Vinci were centuries apart. We are thus led to the conclusion that though the engravings in Brunfell's herbal are separated from previous botanical figures by an almost impassable gulf, they should not be regarded as a sudden and inexplicable development. The art of naturalistic plant drawing had arrived independently at what was perhaps its high-water mark of excellence, but it is in Brunfell's great work that we find it, for the first time, applied to the illustration of a botanical book. The illustrations in Brunfell's herbal were engraved and probably drawn also by Hans Weiditz, or Guditus, some of whose work has been ascribed to Albrecht Durer. The title Herbarum Vivae Icones, Living Pictures of Plants, indicates the most distinctive feature of the book, namely that the artist went direct to nature instead of regarding the plant world through the eyes of the previous draftsman. This characteristic is best appreciated on comparing Brunfell's figures with those of his predecessors. His picture of the water lily, for example, contrasts notably with that of the same subject from the Venetian Herbarius. In the former, the artist has caught the exact look of the leaves and stalks buoyed up by the water. Throughout the work, the drawing seems to be of a slightly higher quality than the actual engraving. The lines are, to use the technical term, occasionally somewhat rotten or even broken. In one respect, the welcome reaction from the conventional and generalized early drawings went almost too far. Many of Brunsfeld's woodcuts were done from imperfect specimens in which, for example, the leaves had withered or had been damaged by insects. This is clearly shown in text figure 84. The artist's ambition was evidently limited to representing the specimen he had before him, whether it was typical or not. The notion had not then been grasped that the ideal botanical drawing avoids the peculiarities of any individual specimen and seeks to portray the characters really typical of the species. These characters can sometimes only be arrived at by comparison of numerous specimens. From the figures here reproduced, a good idea of the style of Vidits can be obtained. His line is usually firm and broad, and but little shading is employed. The chief merit of the drawings lies in their crisp and virile outlines. Regarded from the point of view of decorative book illustration, the beautiful drawings of the period under construction sometimes failed to reach the standard set by earlier work. The very strong black velvety line of many of the 15th century wood engravings and the occasional use of solid black backgrounds give a great sense of richness, especially in combination with the black letter type with which they harmonize so admirably. A page bearing such illustrations is often more satisfying to the eye than one in which the desire to express the subtleties of plant form in realistic fashion has led to the use of a more delicate line. However, the primary object of the herbal illustrations was, after all, a scientific and not a decorative one, and from this point of view, the gain in realism more than compensates for the loss in the harmonious balance of black and white. Our chronological survey of the chief botanical woodcuts brings us next to those published by Egenolf in 1533 to illustrate Rodion's Kruderbach. These have sometimes been regarded as of considerable importance, almost comparable in fact with those of Brunfels, 
A careful examination of these wood engravings leads, however, to the conclusion that practically all the chief figures in Engelwolf's book have been copied from those of Brunfels, but on a smaller scale and reversed. It is true that the style of engraving is different, and that, as Hatton has pointed out, Egenolf's flowing, easy, almost brush-like line is very distinct from that of Weidet's, but the fact of the plagiarism remains. The two figures here reproduced, the lesser Selendine and the heart's tongue fern, are reduced copies from Brunfels. It is interesting to notice that as the third part of Brunfels' great work had not appeared when Egenolf's book was published, the latter must have been at a loss for figures of the plants which Brunfeld had reserved for his third volume. We find that, in the case of one such plant, the asparagus, he solved the problem by going back to the old familiar woodcut which had done duty in the Ortus sanitatis and the Herbarius zutoich. In the third volume of Brunfeld's Herbal, which appeared after his death, there is a small figure, that of Auricula Murus, which differs conspicuously in style from the other engravings, and which appears to represent a case in which the tables were turned and a figure was borrowed from Egenolf. In his later books, Egenolf used woodcuts pirated from those of Fuchs and Bach, which we must now consider. In the work of Leonhard Fuchs, Front's piece, plant drawing as an art may be said to have reached its culminating point. It is true that, at a later period, when the botanical importance of the detailed structure of the flower and fruit was recognized, figures were produced which conveyed exacter and more copious information on these points than did those of Fuchs. Nevertheless, at least in opinion of the present writer, the illustration to Fuchs' herbals, De Historia Stirpium, 1542, and New Kreuterbuch, 1543, represent the high watermark of that type of botanical drawing which seeks to express the individual character and habit of each species, treating the plant broadly as a whole, and not laying more stress upon the reproductive than the vegetative organs. Fuchs' figures are on so large a scale that the plant frequently had to be represented as curved in order to fit it into the folio page. The illustrations here reproduced do not give an entirely just idea of their beauty, since the line employed in the original is so thin that it is ill-adapted to the reduction necessary here. If the drawings have any fault, it is perhaps to be found in the somewhat blank and unfinished look occasionally produced when unshaded outline drawings are used on so large a scale. This is the case, for instance, in the figure of the aloe. It may be that Fuchs had in mind the possibility that the purchaser might wish to color the work and to fill in a certain amount of detail for himself. The existing copies of this and other old herbals often have the figures painted, generally in a distressingly crude and heavy fashion. The coloring in many cases appears to have been done at a very early date. In the octavo edition of Fuchs' Herbal, published in 1545, small versions of the large woodcuts appeared. It is perhaps invidious to draw distinctions between the work of Fuchs and that of Brunfels, since they are both of such exquisite quality. However, merely as an expression of personal opinion, the present writer must confess to feeling that there is a finer sense of power and freedom of handling about the illustrations in Fuchs' herbal than those of Brunfels. Sometimes in Fuchs' figures, a wonderfully decorative spirit is shown, as in the case of the earthnut pea, which fills the rectangular space almost in the manner of an all-over wallpaper pattern. It must not be forgotten, when discussing woodcuts, that the artist who drew upon the block for the engraver was working under peculiar conditions. 
It was impossible for him to be unmindful of the boundaries of the block when these took form, as it were, of miniature precipices under his hand. These boundaries marked out the exact limit of space which the figure could occupy. It is not surprising, under these circumstances, that the artist who drew upon the block should often seem to have been obsessed by its rectangularity, and should have accommodated his drawing to its form in a way that was unnecessary and far from realistic, though sometimes very decorative. This is exemplified in the figure of the earth nut P, to which we have just referred to, and also in text figures 41, 44, 62, 92, 95, 101, etc. The writer has been told by an artist accustomed in former years to draw upon the wood for the engraver that to avoid a rectangular effect required a distinct effort of will. At the present day, when photographic methods of reproduction are almost exclusively used, the artist is no longer oppressively conscious of the exact outline of the space which his figure will occupy. The figures here reproduced show how great a variety of subjects were successfully dealt with in Fuchs' work. The cabbage is realized in a way that brings home to us the intrinsic beauty of this somewhat prosaic subject. In the wild arum, the fruit and a dissection of the inflorescence are represented, so that botanically the drawing reaches a high level. Fuchs' woodcuts are nearly all original, but that of the white water lily appears to have been founded upon Brunfell's figure. We have so far spoken, for the sake of brevity, as if Fuchs actually executed the figures himself. This, however, was not the case. He employed two draftsmen, Heinrich Fulmorer, who drew the plants from nature, and Albrecht Meyer, who copied the drawings onto the wood, and also an engraver, Viet Rudolf Speckel, who actually cut the blocks. Fuchs evidently delighted to honor his colleagues, for at the end of the book there are portraits of all three at work. The artist is drawing a plant with a brush fixed in a quill. The drawing and painting of flowers is sometimes dismissed almost contemptuously, as though it were a humble art in which an inferior artist, incapable of the more exacting work of drawing from the life, might be able to excel. The falsity of this view is shown by the fact that the greatest of flower painters have generally been men who also did admirable figure work. Fantine Latour is a striking modern instance, and one has but to glance at the studies of Leonardo da Vinci and Albrecht Durer to feel that the finest plant drawings can only be produced by a master hand, capable of achieving success on more ambitious lines. The wood engravings in Fuchs' herbal are a case in point. The portraits which also illustrate the book show that the talents of the artists whom he employed were not confined to plant drawing, but were also strong in the direction of vigorous and able portraiture. Fuchs' gratitude to his assistants is expressed in the preface to De Historia Sturpium, where he makes some remarks upon the illustrations, which may be translated as follows. As far as concerns the pictures themselves, each of which is positively delineated according to the features and likeness of the living plants, we have taken peculiar care that they should be most perfect, and moreover, we have devoted the greatest diligence to secure that every plant should be depicted with its own roots, stalks, leaves, flowers, seeds, and fruits. Furthermore, we have purposely and deliberately avoided the obliteration of the natural form of a plant by shadows, and other less necessary things, by which the delineators sometimes try to win artistic glory, and we have not allowed the craftsmen so to indulge their whims as to cause the drawings not to correspond accurately to the truth. Vitus Rodufol's Specklin, by far the best engraver of Strasbourg, has admirably copied the wonderful industry of the draftsmen, and has with such excellent craft expressed in his engraving the features of each drawing, 
but he seems to have contended with the draftsmen for glory and victory. How dull and colorless the phrases of modern scientific writers appear beside the hot-blooded, arrogant enthusiasm of the 16th century. Fuchs woodcuts were extensively pirated, especially those on a reduced scale, which were published in his edition of 1545. As we have mentioned on page 55, Hieronymus Bach, or Trajus, undoubtedly made use of them in the second edition of his Cruder book, which was the next important illustrated botanical work to appear after Fuchs's herbal. An examination of the woodcuts in Bach's herbal seems, however, to show that his illustrations have more claim to originality than is often supposed. The figures of wintergreen, moonwort, and strawberry here reproduced are markedly different from those of Fuchs, although in the case of the first, Fuchs' woodcut may have been used to some extent. The artist employed by Bach, as he himself tells us, was David Kandel, a young lad, the son of a burgher of Strasbourg. His drawings are often of interest apart from their botanical aspect. For instance, the picture of an oak tree includes, appropriately enough, a swineherd with his swine, the chestnut tree gives occasion for a hedgehog, and in another case, a monkey and several rabbits are introduced, one of the latter holding a shield bearing the artist's initials. The woodcut of Trapa, the bull nut, is a highly imaginative production which clearly shows that neither the artist nor the author had ever seen the plant in question. In general character, Bach's illustrations are neater and more conventional than those of Brunfels or Fuchs. The crowns of the trees are often made practically square so as to fit the block. The figures in earlier works, such as the Ortus Sanitatis, are recalled in Candle's disregard of the proportion between the size of the tree and that of the leaves and fruits. In point of time, the illustrations to the early editions of Mattioli's commentaries on the six books of Dioscorides follow fairly closely on those of Fuchs, but they are extremely different in style. Details such as the veins and hairs of the leaves are often elaborately worked out while shading is much used, a considerable mastery of parallel lines being shown. The general effect is occasionally somewhat flat and dull. Some of the drawings suggest that they may have been done from dry plants, and in others the treatment is overcrowded. But in spite of these defects, they form a markedly individual contribution which is of great importance in the history of botanical illustration. Numerous editions of Mattioli's work appeared in various languages. In its earlier form, the book had only small figures, but in some later editions, notably that which appeared in Venice in 1565, there are large illustrations which are reproduced on a reduced scale in text figures 43, 44, and 95. These woodcuts resemble the smaller ones in character, but are more decorative in effect and often remarkably fine. Whereas in the work of Brunfeld and Fuchs, the beautiful line of a single stalk is often the keynote of the whole drawing, in the work of Mattioli, the eye most frequently finds its satisfaction in the rich massing of foliage, fruit, and flowers, suggestive of southern luxuriance. Many of his figures would require literal modification to form the basis of a tapestry pattern. Another remarkable group of wood engravings consists of those published by Plantine in connection with the work of the three low country herbalists, Dodens, De La Clue, and De Lobel. In the original edition of Dodens Herbal, Kruyevok, published by Vanderloo in 1554, more than half the illustrations were taken from Fuchs' Octavo edition of 1545. But eventually, as we have pointed out in Chapter 4, Vanderloo parted with Fuchs' blocks. After this, Plantin took over the publication of Dodin's books, and in his final collected works, Sterpium Historiae Pemtades Sex, 1583, 
The majority of the illustrations were original and were carried out under the author's eye. A few, namely those marked in the Pentades ex codice Cesario, are copied from Juliana Anicia's manuscript of Dioscorides, to which we have more than once referred. Some are also borrowed from the works of De La Cruz and De La Belle, since Plantin was publisher to all three botanists, and the woodblocks engraved for them were regarded as, to some extent, forming a common stock. In fact, it is often difficult to decide to which author any given figure originally belonged. This difficulty is enhanced by the fact that some were actually made for one and then used for another before the work for which they had been originally destined was published. There is little to be said about De Lobel's figures which partook of the character of the rest of the woodcuts for which Plantin made himself responsible. The yellow water lily is given here as an example. The woodcuts illustrating the comparatively small books of De La Cruz are perhaps the most interesting of the figures associated with this trio of botanists. The dragon tree, Sedum Majus, and Job's tears are examples from his books on the plants of Spain, which appeared in 1576. The popularity of a large collection of blocks got together by the publishing house of Plantin is shown by the frequency with which they were copied. Dr. B. Dayton Jackson has pointed out that the woodcut of the clematis, which first appeared in Dodens Pentades of 1583, reappears either in identical form or more or less accurately copied in works by De Lobel, De La Cluse, Girard, Parkinson, Jean Balkin, Chabreos, and Petiver. The actual blocks themselves appear to have been used for the last time when Johnson's edition of Girard's Herbal made its final appearance in London, 1636. Another school of plant illustration is represented in the work of Gessner and Camerarius. As we mentioned on page 92, Gessner's drawings were not published during his lifetime, but some of them were eventually produced by Camerarius with the addition of figures of his own to illustrate his Epitome Mathioli of 1586 and also his later work. In 1751, C.J. True published a collection of Gessner's drawings, many of which had never been seen before, but even then it proved impossible to separate the work of the two botanists with any completeness, since Gessner's drawings and blocks had passed through the hands of Camerarius, who had incorporated his own with them. A few woodcuts, however, which appeared as an appendix to Simler's Life of Gessner, are undoubtedly Gessner's own work. One of them is reproduced in text figure 48. Professor Trevoranus, whose work on the use of wood engravings as botanical illustrations is so well known, considered that some of the drawings published by Camerarius in connection with his last work, Portus Medicus et Philosophicus, 1588, were among the best ever produced. Examples are shown in text figures 34, 35, 71, 100. Treveranus pointed out that one of their great merits lay in the selection of good, typical specimens as models. These figures are very much more botanical than those of any previous author. In fact, as Hatton has pointed out in the Craftsman's Plant book, they are beginning to become too botanical for the artist. Camerarius often gives detailed analyses of the flowers and fruit on an enlarged scale. Among the illustrations here reproduced will be seen one in which the seedling of the rose of Jericho is drawn side by side with the mature plant, and another in which the structure of a germinating date is shown with great clearness. This interest in seedlings gives a modern touch to the work of Camerarius. A number of woodblocks were cut at Lyon to illustrate de Alechon's work, the Historia Generalis Planetarum, 1586-87. 
Many of these figures were taken from the herbals of Fuchs, Mattioli, and Dodens, but they were often embellished with representations of insects, detached leaves and flowers, scattered over the block with no apparent object except to fill the space. This peculiarity, which is shown in the engraving of Ornithogalum, reproduced in text figure 51, appears also in the illustrations of a book on symbols by Johannes Mesua, published in Venice in 1581. In certain other woodcuts in De Alichon's herbal, solid black is used in an effective fashion. This is the case, for instance, in text figure 101, which is also interesting since two of the leaves bear the initials M and H, which were possibly those of the artist. Among less important botanical wood engravings of the 16th century, we may mention those in the works of Pierre Bellon, such as De Arboribus, 1553. In this book, there are some graceful woodcuts of trees, one of which is reproduced in text figure 102. The initial letters used in the present volume are taken from another of Bellon's books. Some specimens of the quaint little illustrations to Castor Durante's Herbario Nuovo of 1585 are shown in text figures 45, 68, and 103. It is interesting to compare his drawing of the water lily with those of the Venetian edition of the Latin Herbarius of 1499, the Greta Erbal, Brunfels Herbarium Vive Icones of fifteen thirty, and De Labelle's Kruyetzbok of fifteen eighty one. The engravings in Porta's Phytognomonica fifteen eighty eight and in Prospero Alpino's Little Book on Egyptian Plants fifteen ninety two are of good quality. Some curious examples of the former, which will be discussed at greater length in the next chapter are shown in text figures 109 and 110, and the glasswort, one of the best woodcuts among the latter, is reproduced in text figure 47. Passing on to the 17th century, we find the Prodromos of Gaspard Bauhin, 1620, contains a number of original illustrations, but they are not very remarkable, and often have rather the appearance of having been drawn from pressed specimens. Two examples of these woodcuts will be found in text figures 49 and 62. The former is interesting as being an early representation of the potato. Parkinson's Paradisus Terrestris of 1629 contains a considerable proportion of original figures, besides others borrowed from previous writers. The engravings were made in England by Switzer. They are poor in quality, and the innovation of representing a number of species in one large woodcut is not very successful. Text figure 55 shows a twig of Barbary, which is but a single item in one of these large illustrations. Among still later wood engravings, we may mention the large, rather coarse cuts in Aldrovandi's Dendrologia of 1667, one of which, the figure of the orange, or Mala Arantia Chinisnia, is reproduced in text figure 104 on a greatly reduced scale. In the present chapter, no attempt has been made to discuss the illustrations of those herbals, for example, the works of Turner, Tabernemontanos, Girard, etc., in which most of the woodcuts are copied from previous books. In the majority of such cases, the source of the figures has already been indicated in Chapter 4. This brief review of the history of botanical woodcuts leads us to the conclusion that between 1530 and 1630, that is to say during the hundred years when the herbal was at its zenith, the number of sets of wood engravings which were preeminent, either on account of their intrinsic qualities or because they were repeatedly copied from book to book, was strictly limited. We might almost say that there were only five collections of woodcuts of plants of really first-rate importance. 
those namely of Brunfels, Fuchs, Mattioli, and Plantin, with those of Gessner, Camerarius, all of which were published in the sixty years between 1530 and 1590. The woodblocks of the two botanists last mentioned cannot be considered apart from one another. From the scientific point of view, they show a marked advance in the introduction of enlarged sketches of the flowers and fruit, in addition to the habit drawings. Plantain's sets included those blocks which were engraved for the herbals of De Lobel, De La Cruz, and the later works of Dodens. At the close of the 16th century, woodcutting on the continent was distinctly on the wane and had begun to be superseded by engraving on metal. The earliest botanical work, in which copper plate etchings were used as illustrations, is said to be Fabio Colonna's Phytobasanos of 1592. These etchings, two of which are shown in text figures 46 and 105, are on a small scale, but are extremely beautiful and accurate. The details of the flowers and fruit are often shown separately, the figures in this respect being comparable with those of Gessner and Camerarius, though, owing to their small size, they do not convey so much botanical information. In a later book of Colonna's, the Ekphrasis, Analyses of the floral parts are given in even greater detail than in the Phytobasanos. Colonna expressly mentions that he used wild plants as models wherever possible because cultivation is apt to produce alterations in the form. The decorative border surrounding each of the figures reproduced was not printed from the copper. In the 17th century, a large number of botanical books illustrated by means of copper plates were produced. The majority of these were published late in the century and thus scarcely come within our purview. A few of the earlier ones may, however, be referred to at this point. In 1611, Paul Reynolme's Specimen Historiae Planetarum was published in Paris, but though this work was illustrated with good copper plates, the effect was somewhat spoilt by the transparency of the paper. Two years later appeared the Hortus Aestatensis by Basil Bessler, an apothecary of Nuremberg. It is a large work with enormous illustrations, mostly of mediocre quality. In the succeeding year, 1614, a book was published which has been described, probably with justice, as containing some of the best copper plate figures of plants ever produced. This was the Hortus Floridius of Crispian de Passe, a member of a famous family of engravers. Like Parkinson's Paradisus Terrestris, into which some of the figures are copied, it is more of the nature of a garden book than an herbal. In 1615, an English edition of Crispian de Passy's work was published at Utrecht under the title of A Garden of Flowers. The plates are the same as those in the original work. The artist is particularly successful with the bulbous and tuberous plants, the cultivation of which has long been such a specialty of Holland. Plate 19 is a characteristic example, but only part of the original picture is here reproduced. The soil on which the plants grow is often shown, and the horizon is placed very low so that they stand up against the sky. This convention seems to have been characteristic not only of the plant drawings of the Dutch artists, but also of their landscapes. In the paintings of Kuyup and Paul Potter, the skyline is sometimes so low that it is seen between the legs of the cows and horses. This treatment was no doubt suggested by life in a flat country, but was carried to such an extreme that the artist's eye level must have been almost on the ground. The purchaser of the Garden of Flowers receives detailed directions for the painting of the figures, which he is expected to carry out himself. The book is divided into four parts, appropriate to the four seasons, and each part is preceded by an encouraging verse intended to keep alive the owner's enthusiasm for his task. 
The stanza at the beginning of the last section seems to show some anxiety on the part of the author, lest the reader should have begun to weary over the lengthy occupation of coloring the plates. It reads as follows. If hitherto, my friend, you have performed the task in hand, with joy proceed, this last will be the best when all is scanned. As we have already mentioned, it is not our intention to deal with the books published in the latter part of the 17th century. We may, however, for the sake of completeness, mention two or three examples in order to show the kind of work that was then being done. Paolo Bocconi's Icones et Descripciones of 1647 was illustrated with copper plates, some of which were remarkably subtle and delicate, while others were rather carelessly executed. Among slightly later works, we may refer to a quaint little Dutch herbal by Stephen Blinkart, and to the Paradisus Batavus of Paul Hermann, both of which belong to the last decade of the century. The latter, which is an Elsevier with very good copper plates, was published after the author's death and dedicated by his widow to Henry Compton, Bishop of London. On the plates which illustrate Blankhart's herbal, a landscape and figures are often introduced to form a background, and the low horizon, to which we referred in speaking of the Hortus floridus, is a very conspicuous feature. The picture of the winter cherry is here reproduced as an example. As showing the complete revolution in the style of plant illustration in 200 years, it is interesting to compare this drawing with that of the same subject in the German Herbarius of 1485. It must be confessed that the 15th century woodcut, though far less detailed and painstaking, seizes the general character of the plant in a way that the 17th century copper plate somewhat misses. Etching and engraving on metal are well adapted to very delicate and detailed work, but from the point of view of book illustration, wood engraving is generally more effective. In the latter, the lines are raised and the method of printing is thus exactly the same as in the case of type, while in the former, the process is reversed and the lines are incised. As a result, there is a harmony about a book illustrated with woodcuts which cannot, in the nature of things, be attained when such different processes as printing from raised type and from incised metal are brought together in the same volume. End of chapter 7